right, friends, as promised, the second edition of the recent Hope podcast with Parks Edwards on the moral argument for God's existence. Here you go. We can move into now just looking at a few objections to the moral argument. Right. You've already addressed one, which is not a very serious objection, but a lot of people raise it. And it's just the idea that you don't need to believe in God to be a moral person. And so right. you've already kind of talked about yeah. that. That's and The distinction there is it's the problem isn't belief in God. It's the existence of God. If God doesn't exist, then nobody can be good because there's no standard. But if God does exist, even people that gives a standard, even people who don't believe in him could keep the standard back to the reading illustration, too. So that's the that's the distinction. Right. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned relativism earlier. Most philosophers are going to distinguish between two types of relativism, although they're definitely related. Uh, cultural relativism and then individual relativism yeah. or subjectivism. Right. I want to look at a an objection to the moral argument based in cultural relativism. Sure. So you know it may go like this: um, morality is dependent upon human culture. And so, therefore, it's not something transcendent or objective. Transcendent moral codes must be rejected because this results in a kind of, as some people would say, an intolerant dogmatism towards those who disagree. And the way that I've seen morality relativized to cultures is people like anthropologists, you know, they would say, your moral judgments and your perception of what is moral is is rooted and it's shaped by the culture that you're in. And so they use the analogy and they compare it to language. And they would say, if you, uh, if you go to different cultures, they have many times different languages, different ways of referring to things. Um, and so morality is like this as well, they would say. So we can't say that any given language is better than anyone else's. It's just that's the language of culture A, and then you have the language of culture B. So because you can't say any language is better, they would say morality is in the same boat. You can't say that any one culture's morality is any better than another. And Mm -hmm. maybe an example of this could be you go to India, and there Hinduism is very prominent, and you have the idea of the caste system. People who are on the very bottom part of the, the caste are people see them as getting basically what they deserve because of their karmic debt, you know, from their past uh-huh. life. And so right. people don't intervene to help people suffering like that because they would say that's the moral thing. They deserve to suffer. And But people in the West, in America, you know, may balk at that kind of treatment and say, you know, you can't just refuse to help people who are in need. So this would be a difference between the morality in somewhere like India related to the caste system and right. then in the West. So. How would you respond to that idea of uh, cultural relativism? Well, well, there's a there's a lot to say about this. First of all, language is conventional. Okay, we it's clear that we make up the sounds and the tokens to represent other things. So I could say table in English, or I could say mesa. Okay, Spanish. All right, it's a, it, it, we we're referring to the same thing, but the way that we refer to it is just a, based on a convention. What's interesting about this comparison is that what the person who makes this particular point, raises this objection, is doing is to say that our convictions about what's right and wrong are no different than different sounds we might use to describe different objects. Now, that strikes me as rather extreme. So, so just I'm just making that observation. There are some other there are problems with it, 
One of them that came out right away. If you think your morality in your culture is better than somebody else's morality, and you don't realize that morality is just a matter of subjective preference by groups of people, cultures, then that can make you dogmatic and intolerant. Now, notice that person speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're affirming moral relativism. And on the other hand, they're saying that intolerance is an objective moral wrong. Because my question is going to be in my tactical style asking questions, what's wrong with intolerance? Well, that's not right. Who says who? Your grandmother? Did you just make that up? Why are you imposing your morality on me right now if you don't think that's appropriate? So, I mean, for a long time, this, maybe you remember this, apartheid in South Africa. You're enough probably to remember that. It was a big deal, a cause celeb uh, by a lot of people in this country. No, apartheid is over with now in South Africa. But notice that was a different culture. And nobody who objected to apartheid said, well, that's their culture. That's the way they do it. And that's their moral viewpoint. Who are we to say? No, all these relativists were campaigning against apartheid because they realized that there was a, a moral rule that went above the cultures that you're describing. But I want to make another observation. There's an actually a fundamental sort of not only is this contradictory the way you characterize it, and that's the way it's often characterized. Um, there are implicit appeals to objective morality smuggled in there. But th there's there's another problem. And the problem is, since the claim here is that morality is culturally determined, and if there weren't any cultures, there wouldn't be any morality. So here's my question. What about science? If there were no cultures, would there be no scientific facts about the world? Now, they might not be uh, discovered, of course, characterized, quanti uh, quantified, whatever, but would, would gravity still be gravity? Of course it would be. Okay, so it takes a culture uh, using its conventional language to look at the nature of reality and draw conclusions about why the world is the way it is. We don't simply dismiss that and say, well, that's their culture, their cultural belief. Without that culture, they wouldn't have believed that. Uh, people can believe false things, no questions. There, for a long time, people thought the earth was flat. And then you had people say, no, it's not flat, it's round. And they actually have believed that for a long time because you can see a, the solar eclipse, no, the, the lunar eclipse. Is that right? Whatever. You could see the shadow of the earth on the moon. Is that right? Okay, later. The point is, they, they, they knew this for a long time, but a lot of people didn't believe it. Now, notice you have some communities that believe the earth is round, and you have some communities that believe the earth is flat. Because you have a difference of opinion between the two communities on the shape of the earth, does that mean the earth has no shape? Of course not. This is the biggest mistake of trying to justify relativism in a cultural sense by looking at differences of opinion. This tells you about anthropology. It doesn't tell you anything about morality. Okay? You, certainly cultures can influence the way we think about things. There's no question about that. And so you're going to have those differences. But that doesn't tell you anything at all about the reality of morality. Just because a culture, some cultures believe sickness is from demons. Other cultures, primitive cultures, other cultures, they, they learn that sickness is a result of, of uh, bacteria or something like that. So so who's right? They get different. There is no right answer. No, we don't say that. That's silly. But we do that with cultures when it comes to morality. Now, when you look actually closer at the cultures parks, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned uh, uh, Hindu culture, for example, and the caste system. So they have they have these views influenced by their culture and their. But sometimes 
once you get past the superficial differences, underneath there is a a much more profound moral notion that we share in common. So, for example, um, Hindus don't eat cattle. Or I, you know, I've been to Madras, India, and there's cattle all over the place. You know, they're just wandering everywhere. No, so they don't eat cattle. Now, in, in America, we don't eat grandma. Cannibalism is wrong, okay? But, uh, but we eat meat. We eat cows. They don't eat cows. You know, you know the reason they don't eat cows? It's because they think the cow may be grandma because of reincarnation. So underneath these difference of facts is a moral conviction that it's wrong to eat grandma, <laughs> you know? And it turns out there's a lot of things that are like this. C.S. Lewis gave a whole list of, uh, in the abolition of man at the back, I think, whole list of moral principles that are held by every culture. Okay. Now, the fact that they're held by every culture doesn't prove objectivism. We'd run into the same problem with cultural differences too. But, but I think that does suggest that morality doesn't vary as much as people think it does. Okay. And even where it does vary, that doesn't tell us uh, about the moral grounding of those beliefs. Just because there's a difference of opinion doesn't mean that nobody's right on this issue. So that, that's a significant flaw in that approach. Yeah, all that's, all that's really good, Greg. Uh, I, I agree. I think it reminds me of how sometimes when people say, well, there's uh, people believe in God or they believe in religion because it provides them with psychological comfort. Sure. As if as if that just explains away religious belief and shows it's irrational. It's like yeah. something similar to me goes on when people just point to what may be differences of expressions of moral principles between mm -hmm. cultures. And they think that just if you point to that, show that maybe there's some differences here, this shows that morality is completely relative. And it, it just doesn't follow that that's the case right this is um, there's an informal fallacy in play here it's called a genetic fallacy and and fancy word all it means is that you fault a view based on its origin and so an atheist might say uh, i've heard him say it you know you're a christian because you live in a christian country if you lived in india you wouldn't be a christian you'd be a hindu so notice that the fault he's faulting religious some claim to religious truth based on the environment that the individual who believes that's the the source the genesis of it uh, is in. And so that tells you, but that tells you about anthropology. It doesn't tell you anything about God. And to show how, to give a, a, an obvious counter or a counter to show how obviously flawed this is, my response to the atheist is, well, if you would have lived in India, you wouldn't be an atheist. Does that mean atheism is false? No, of course not. He's not going to buy that. And he ought not because that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter your psychological motivation. So maybe I believe in God because it makes me feel better. Okay. Just the gen genetic fallacy. And Freud said that, basically, and others, too. Uh, but, yeah, Christianity does make me feel better. So what? doesn't mean it's false. Medicine makes me feel better, too. It doesn't mean it isn't doing its job. This is irrelevant to the truth of any religious claims that we make. They have to be decided on some other basis than what we gain from it. That's the genetic fallacy. And uh, another point, too, that, that you touched on is that relativism is not livable. You know, whether you're talking about on an individual level, someone can claim that morality is completely subjective. Everyone determines what's moral. As soon as someone crosses them in a way they don't deem moral. That's right. And then they react to it. So that shows on an individual level, on a cultural level too, though, you mentioned the uh, trial of Nuremberg with the Nazis, you know, they, if I'm not mistaken, 
that the Nazi leaders on trial, they did try to make some sort of appeal to justify what they did by appealing to their culture. That's and of right. course, the, the tribunal who was, uh, you know, putting them on trial didn't buy that because they, they recognize, you know, you, however you want to phrase it, crimes mm-hmm. against humanity. I mean, you've, you've done something that's violated a, a transcendent objective moral mm-hmm. order and you have to be held accountable to this. And also we think about, um, Figures like Martin Luther King, yes, uh-huh. uh, people would say Gandhi. Uh, just y- you look throughout history, people who've been within a culture, they've recognized something, you know, within the culture that that is being approved by the majority and maybe even justified by laws, and yet they oppose it. That's and right. So if morality is, if it's either decided by the culture, created by the culture, um, or relative between cultures. You would have to look at someone like Martin Luther King and say, you know, he he did something uh, immoral because yeah. he went against the culture. I think that's also really significant. That's a great observation, Parks. They actually call this the, the reformer's dilemma because remember, on this view, it is the culture that where the book stops morally. Whatever the culture says, that's the standard. The majority rules, basically. But that means the majority can never be wrong because being right just is based on the majority rule, essentially. And so, therefore, when you have a reformer like Gandhi or by uh, Reverend Martin Luther King stand up and object to the status quo, he is doing so based on a higher principle. And so he's asking for reform. But on this view, Martin Luther King would be immoral because he's going against the standard. And the, the, the best hot button on this one right now is gay rights. Because for years and years and years, decades, there was a certain way of approaching culture, approaching the issue of homosexuality. And uh, if the culture is the final word, then we can't complain that there was anything immoral about that because the culture is the defining factor. But people did raise issues because it seemed that, that there was a violation of basic human rights that were involved. Notice how they're appealing to something above the culture in order to demand cultural change. This is happening all the time now. Okay. Once again, where we started our conversation, even though people make a lot of noise about relativism, they make a lot of relativistic noise. Still, they can't get away from the fact that there are human beings made in the image of God, and they are deeply and profoundly in touch with the reality of moral principles that are part of the objective world. And they trade on these things all the time. So this is the morals. The uh, reformer's dilemma is another example of why this explanation of the moral project is not going to work. And, uh, you know, most people are going to, as as they reflect upon uh, the, I mean, you've mentioned apartheid in South Africa, and we, we've talked about a few other issues as well, but most people are going to look back on those things and say, we are better off yes. morally because that situation does not obtain That's right. now. And so that brings in the idea of moral progress if that's right if morality is just subjective or relative to culture then where does the idea of moral progress come from and how do you even measure that yeah. we don't we're not getting any closer in our so-called moral progress if you're a relativist to a better way of living we are simply changing so moral progress all it is is change from one view to another it can't be better because in order to be better you have to have an external standard of good that you're more closely approximating as you change your behavior. But moral progress seems to be so obvious on an individual level and a cultural level. But that can't be the case if morals are relative, like you pointed out. And do you, 
do you think um, another implication of a relativistic view may be that, you know, some people would say, you know, if you take relativism uh, to its logical conclusion, you end up with moral nihilism, which right. nihilism is just that that's a view that says that basically life has no meaning. There's no there's no real morality, right. just kind of everything's up for grabs and there's no purpose. And so. Do you think that's true? Does relativism lead? No, to I agree. The, the moral hero of relativism, in other words, the person who lives out the principles of relativism most thoroughly, especially when it comes to individual ethical relativism, morality is up to me. And that's where the culture is now. The moral hero is a sociopath, is a person who has no conscience. All he's interested in is what he wants. Or to put it um, sloganistically, you do you, which is the battle cry of the age, of course, but that's that's what uh, sociopaths. How can how can a moral system be? How can you call a, a moral system a legitimate, good, appropriate moral system when its most excellent exemplar is this soci- sociopath, the one who lives most consistently to the beat of his own moral drum and ignores what other people think is right or wrong? That's a that's a huge problem. I agree. And I think I, I think it's an important implication for people to see, like, you know, if, if if you are going to adopt relativism, this is where it logically leads. I mean, of course, that doesn't mean everyone who's a relativist is going to be a sociopath, right. obviously. But it's just if you're thinking through your beliefs uh, and, and the logical implications of them, you, you have to reckon sure. with that. You're free to be that according to the dictates of your moral code. You're free to be that. You may not all do that. It's like atheists. You look at the, the you know, the greatest murderers and, and uh, genocidal leadership was all been atheists in the 20th century, you know, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, you know, they're communists. They, they were atheists. Well, I'm implying that atheists are going to all do that. But my question is, what is the moral principle inherent to atheism that invades against that? And the answer is there isn't any because there's no moral principle inherent to atheism. So even though they don't choose to do that, there is nothing from stopping them morally in their system from doing that. They are allowed to do that after a fashion, rationally, because there are no moral principles that obey against it. Well, um, I think two two other significant objections uh, to the moral argument you know, before we move on to the last section here would be uh, one would be what's uh, classically called the Euthyphro dilemma, and it yeah. just it refers back to a dialogue of. Plato, the philosopher, he recorded this dialogue between uh, Socrates and this guy named Euthyphro talking about what morality is, basically. And and so oftentimes, at least as far as I've seen, many skeptics think this is the nail in the coffin for the moral argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and it usually goes something like this. You know, it's framed in a question. It says, um, does God command something because it is good or is something good because God commands it. And so the mm-hmm. dilemma here that this is bringing out um, is that if God commands something because it is good, well, that seems to that seems to show that goodness is independent of God somehow, right. which would be a problem. Or mm-hmm. uh, if something is good simply because God commands it, well, then this would seem to make morality arbitrary because That's God right. could just command whatever he wants. Right, if God, right. If God commanded that murder was moral, then it'd be moral. But, you know, it just turns out he said it's not. So it's not. So um, how would you respond to that? Actually, there's a very simple solution to this, though it still comes up a lot. It was solved a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, 
Thomas Aquinas had a solution. And, it, and I remember hearing this for the very first time, J.P. Moreland brought it up in a class I was taking from him. And it occurred to me right away the way to get around this. So this is not tricky at all. Okay, not, as you pointed out, if a thing is good because God commands it, that reduces goodness to his power. It's called voluntarism, by the way. It's a certain version of divine command theory. And uh, we, we are, God could say rape is wrong today, and then tomorrow we could say rape is good. And so it's all arbitrary. So then it questions whether anything is actually good in that sense, if goodness is reduced to his power. But the alternative puts goodness outside of God, makes him incumbent upon that. And then, of course, the same question could be asked if he's if there's some other standard that he's weighing in at, the thing is good, not because he says it, but he says it because it's good. Then where did that standard come from? And then where did that standard come from? And then where the so now you're in in a vicious regress. Notice, by the way, if Euthyphro goes through, okay, you are stuck with relativism because there's no objective standard and all the other counterintuitive things that come with it that we've been talking about, okay. So what we're looking for is a way to secure objectivism against the Euthyphro dilemma. And it's actually quite simple. God doesn't say a thing is a good, a thing isn't good because God says it just in virtue of his raw power and command. It is, he says it because it's good, but the standard is not outside of God. That gets you in this infinite regress. The standard is actually inside of God. The standard is God's own character. Now, that's a, that's a completely legitimate response. And what it does is it, it splits the horns of the dilemma. It shows there's a third option. And the third option is that God's character is good. And by the way, if God's character is not good, there is no other option. There's no other source of goodness. And therefore, goodness doesn't exist. But that's just, that's so counterintuitive. So what we're doing here in answering this objection is we're sticking with our natural intuitions about the nature of the world, being moral, and all the other things that we trade on that require objective morality. We run into this little difficulty. We say, well, there's an answer to this, and the answer must be the right one because it is nothing contradictory about it, nothing tricky about it, but it is a way that then also secures not just objective goodness, but also the goodness of God himself, which is core to the Christian worldview. So it's either this answer or none other. This is the only answer. God himself is good, and, and he's, not, he's not arbitrary. His commands come from the goodness of his own nature. It's not, he's not capable of doing bad, and, uh, and we have a, an ability to, to see the goodness there of God in his commands, in his law. In fact, the, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. There's all, Psalm 19. It's got all these wonderful verses identifying the, the goodness of the law itself because of the goodness of God who gave us the law. And Greg, I think uh, reflecting, you know, oftentimes when we when we reflect upon objections to, you know, the moral argument in this case, but any any argument, it really brings out more important features of it. And I think what, what you're getting at in answering this question is when you think about the reply to this dilemma, this objection, it, it shows you how morality is connected to the nature and the person of God in right. a very important way. Now, some... I have read one atheist that pushes back against even this response that you've been discussing, that, and, and that's that morality comes from God's own essential nature. God, God in his own essential nature is perfectly good. So all his commands flow from that perfectly good nature of, of love and goodness. And at least one atheist that I read pushes back 
And he says that basically you can just apply the same dilemma to that solution. And so uh, you can ask, uh, is God good? Uh, Because to be good just is to be whatever God is. Or is God good because God has all the properties of goodness? So how would you answer that? I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure what he's getting at, but I would say that uh, when it comes to goodness, you uh, at some point you have to acknowledge that there's there's a primitive quality to it. Okay, sooner or later, in all of these areas of knowledge, you have to stop at some foundational place, or else you're back into these kind of regresses that go forever. Uh, then you can never know anything. But obviously, we do know some things, and we know some things about morality, and this seems to be pretty obvious. And so, therefore, um, there's got to be some foundational thing. Okay, some primitive, or it's 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 right there at at the base. And uh, that's what I'm saying about God. Okay. God does have those qualities of goodness. Okay. Well, what makes them good? Because they're good. And I think goodness is something that we have the capacity to observe and to see. I was referring to it a few moments ago, just like we have the ability to perceive other things that exist. Um, There's beauty. I think beauty is, I actually think beauty is an objective feature. There are subjective elements to this, but Everybody can acknowledge certain standards of beauty that are objective, but we behold these things, okay? And and we there's a primitive quality about beauty, and um, and I think the same thing is about goodness. Part of it too is that we don't have many other choices. You can lob all kinds of um, shots across the bow here of these arguments, but you have to resolve this some way. You've got to come to a conclusion, and if you're coming to a conclusion. That is completely counterintuitive uh, with our experience of reality. Well, it's probably the wrong conclusion. So what we're looking for is a conclusion that is consistent with our experience of reality. That is a is a straightforward, adequate explanation for that. And grounding morality in the character of God, so that God's character is essentially good. He has those qualities, and that that does the job. And how do we? Well, how do we know it's good? Because we know it's good. We can see it. That's the stopping point. There's a foundation. And if it's not that answer, then there is no answer. I, there is no other answer. Um, some people have offered, atheists have offered um, what they call a moral Platonism. Okay, now, Platonism is the idea that you have these perfect forms in the immaterial world. And, uh, and so with regards to morality, you might have the perfect form in the abstract realm of goodness or justice or mercy or things like that. So now that's for atheists. They have to abandon their materialism if that's their view, because now we're talking about abstract objects that are real uh, and they're not physical. Okay, that's all right. So we'll hold that. Oh, we'll hold these abstract objects. But notice that abstract objects are inert. They don't do anything. They're just kind of there. The nature of abstract objects is just to be. They don't command anything. It takes a person to command. Okay, and so. Moral Platonism isn't going to work as an explanation because it doesn't explain what needs to be explained, which is the obligatory nature of moral facts and that they apply to human beings. How do they happen to attach to us and not to others? Now, the Christian or the theistic view, broadly put, does explain that in a way that's completely coherent. And it's interesting that people are always trying to find these ways out. I mean, there's one other way we haven't talked about yet. I hope we have time to get to it. That's the the Darwinistic uh, evolutionary uh, rejoinder, which is the biggie. But they're trying to find all these ways out to get rid of God when it seems like he's such a 
appropriate, apt, sufficient explanation. Well, yeah, but there's baggage that comes with. It's called bending the knee, you know, and that's what people don't want to do. Yeah, I I think um, an important question to uh, any any objection to the moral argument or any other argument for God, you have to ask what what is the alternative being proposed? Right. Because this youth for dilemma, I think what you're getting at is that there is a certain appropriate uh, foundational element to moral reality, moral properties that that requires a certain kind of explanation, which is a personal and moral God makes the best sense of our moral experience. And if you are going to get to a point where you're going to criticize that foundational element, you're going to have to propose something else in its place. Mm -hmm. And then we have to ask, is that an adequate explanation? Excellent. Um, And and, and so this does lead to a lot of people do want to explain morality by evolution. And so the way that I have heard it put is like this, you know, it comes at a number of steps, but Usually it'll be characterized like this. Humans are a social species. And so this means certain behaviors were reinforced by the evolutionary process because they contributed to social cohesion. It it helped the group. It contributed towards cooperation and survival. And these are behaviors like empathy, uh, being empathetic towards other human beings, being altruistic or self-sacrificing, putting others before yourself. So generally seen as uh, an appropriate way to help advance the species. So that's reinforced. And so as these behaviors are reinforced through all the years of Darwinian evolution, they become established in in the human psyche and because they have been demonstrated to promote human well-being. So you can look at uh, how humans relate to each other and you can objectively see that certain behaviors do lead to a kind of well-being or flourishing. And so this means that, you know, at this point in our evolutionary history, we've moved beyond viewing morality as just about mere survival. Um, it's now a pursuit and a promotion of human flourishing or uh-huh. well-being. And so, you know, some skeptics are going to say empathy is the foundational starting point for moral reasoning. Because if you put yourself in the position of another conscious human being, you know, you know what it's like to be a conscious human being mm-hmm. and you want to be treated certain ways. And so you have that awareness. So you're able to take your own experience and awareness of what it is like to be a conscious human being. And mm-hmm. you can imagine yourself as another person. And so it, it's supposed to create this empathy. And, uh, and so the conclusion to this way of thinking for some people would be, this means that we don't need God to explain morality. You can establish human well-being as a goal. I, I heard one skeptic say that morality is like chess. Uh, you know, The goal of chess is, of course, to win. You want to uh, get to the checkmate, and there are certain rules for how you get to that end. You play the game. And so you know, the idea is that we just need to decide or recognize that the goal you know, that we're trying to get to that's what it means for morality to be objective in their view. So, yeah. well, uh, there is uh, this is the standard objection to the moral argument. Okay, now I keep referring to street smarts because I, in all these issues, I go into detail on this, especially the evolutionary rejoinder, which is the one you offered. 
And it's a combination of individual biological evolution and kind of a cultural evolution that goes on. So there are two different things that are going on here. And by the way, biological is biological. Okay, that's event causation. That's just biology. Okay, the Darwinian, neo-Darwinian project, uh, synthesis rather. But the other one, culture, this is design because this is individuals kind of setting up codes that will help them to get along together. So I'm not disparaging it. I'm just making an observation. One is one is event causation, dominoes falling in the physical universe. The other one is people thinking about how to uh, adapt as a group. Okay. Now, that's I, a good what, distinction. Yeah, I, I have a lot to say about this. And uh, it, it, there's, it was so on. I, I wrote down as much as I could here. I got my scribbles. But first of all, Darwinian evolution is not about the survival of the species. It's about the survival of the selfish chain. There is no teleology to evolution. Evolution has no goal in itself. Individual genes survive and produce characteristics in the morphology and the physical body of the creature that is then reproduced. And if it's beneficial, that little change, that individual will reproduce more effectively. So it's not about survival. It's about reproduction. And it's not about species. It's about genes. And this is why Richard Dawkins famously wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. He's making this point. It doesn't know anything about society. It doesn't know anything about species. It just is reproducing according to natural selection and species die out, new species come forward. Okay, so just just a clarification of how this, this project works. Secondly, the claim that morality develops by evolution, and you, you talked about certain patterns that build them, establish in the, um, the human psyche. These are questions that need to be asked. Okay, for one, how does that actually happen? What, what you just described is wand waving. All it is is a wand of evolution that's waved with this kind of very generalized explanation. This is not scientific. This is a philosophic characterization by telling a story. Some people call these just-so stories, like after Kipling's fanciful tales for kids, because that's what they sound like. So my question is, how exactly does that work? You have genetic mutation working on natural, uh, natural selection working on genetic mutation. Tell me, how do you get genetic mutations, which are physical? Genes are mutated, which then manifest physical characteristics that are chosen for in natural selection. So that gene gets itself into the next generation. W where does a moral thought come into play, a moral belief that gets built into my psyche? You guys don't even believe in a psyche. You believe in brains. But notice how they smuggle these concepts in. They smuggle the, uh, the human psyche. It's established in the human psyche. What's a human psyche? And how does a belief get created by the standard characterization of the evolutionary process? See, the devil's in the details here. And it's not just enough to wave a wand. It's, it's a good place to start. Okay, this is how we think it happened. Now we got to show how empathy is created in the genes. Okay. By the way, if it is created in their genes, it's hard to call it a moral virtue in somebody any more than having blue eyes is a moral virtue. The genes created, it's determined, it's not chosen. It's part of your evolution. Okay. So these are some of the problems. How exactly does it create beliefs? I actually don't think it can do that. But let's just say that it can. Where do these beliefs reside? In the psyche? What's the psyche? Well, you don't have a soul on this characterization. You have a brain and central nervous system. 
So where are beliefs, which are propositional, manifest in the, in the chemistry? Okay, so this is another problem. Now, they may be able to work this out. Fine, knock away at it. But this needs to be solved before you can say this is the right explanation for morality. And notice also the smuggling in of a moral concept into this whole process. Because what we see here is human flourishing. What the heck is that? What is human flourishing? Different people have different ideas of what flourishing looks like. Okay, flourishing is a moral concept already. Okay, it's teleological. There's a goal in mind, the best experience of humanity. But how, what does that look like? Well, that depends on your moral code. So there is this kind of teleological concept built in to a non-teleological process. So there is no end in view. And it smuggles in a moral notion of flourishing, which look at for a Christian to flourish and for an atheist to flourish. These look very different. This is why we have conflict in our culture right now. You know, what is good for our culture? Transgenderism? Is that flourishing? Those people who are in favor of it, believe it. Those people who are not in favor of it says, no, this is denial of reality. This is dangerous. This is why the suicide rates are so high for transgender people. So notice now we've brought in another element, real subtly, quietly, human flourishing. Oh, it sounds so great. But this trades on moral notions that you're trying to explain. So you can't smuggle in moral notions in an explanation of how moral notions come about. That's uh, that's suspiciously circular, okay? But there's another problem. I mean, there, there's lots of problems, but I'm just touching on some of them because this is such a such a powerful uh, rejoinder to the moral argument. Okay, so let's just say all of these things are, all of the characterizations they give us sound, okay? That the, the biological natural selection mutation works to create beliefs and the beliefs end up in our psyche, wherever that is, and that and those beliefs help us to be. What was the word you used? Uh, sympath- not sympathetic, but uh, altruistic and altruistic. Mm-hmm. And there was another one that you know where, where we empathize. Emp- they cause us to be empathetic, and all of these things, and then we flourish more. Okay, now here's the and th- and this makes up kind of the moral structure of human beings, right? Because here's the question: Where is that moral structure? Is that moral structure on the inside? Or is it on the outside? Well, it turns out that the evolutionary explanation of morality places all morality on the inside. In other words, if human minds didn't exist, there wouldn't be any morality. It's mind-dependent. Evolution can't make rape as an action in the world wrong. Biology can't do that. All it could do, in principle, is make you believe that it's wrong when it actually isn't objectively wrong. Now, uh, the, the atheistic evolutionary philosopher Michael Rose from Florida State or University of Florida, uh, who I've actually had conversations with, um, had, is very consistent here. He says, on the evolutionary take of things, morality is an illusion. It's not real. We have been tricked to believe that it's not that in morality and tricked by evolution to believe that it's objective, because if we didn't think it was objective, it would work for its purposes. But he's quite candid about this. Now, I debated Michael Sherber on national radio for three hours, and he just never got it right. And I got his book on morality right here behind me, and he gets it wrong, the whole thing. But Michael Roos gets it right because he's a careful philosopher. If there is no God, there is no objective morality. He agrees with the first premise. And the sense of morality that we have is produced by evolution. In other words, the sense of morality is just a sense. It's inside of us. 
It's either inside of us individually, biologically, or inside of our group by cultural decision. But nevertheless, morality is inside of the subject. What does that make morality then? When all is said and done, if everything they claim upon evolution is true, it means morality is only relative. That's it. What you got is a great grounding for relativistic morality, which means there is no problem of evil. There is, are no, there is no justice. There are no human rights. All of that stuff that are disqualified by relativism, in an objective sense, they're gone. Now, you can make things up all day long if you want to. That's what the Nazis did. So what is your principal argument against them? They, do, they evolve differently. That's all you can say. Why do I have to, and why do I have to obey my evolution? If your evolution says that you should be nice, why do I have to obey your evolution? Maybe my evolution taught me differently. Or even if it taught me to be nice, why do I have to obey my genes? Do you see the problems here? Okay, so the, 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 the huge disqualifier here is it leaves you with relativism once again, if all of that is the case. But there's another problem that C.S. Lewis noted and uh, the philosopher from uh, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah, Alvin Plantinga. Thank you, Parks. Uh, he's made a big deal about this, and it's a problem. According to this view, uh, and Michael Roos is very clear about this, evolution works in such a way as to give you, create in your mind or your brain, in your psyche, false views about reality. We think these things are right or wrong, objectively. That's a trick of evolution, according to Michael Rose. It's not the case that they are objectively right or wrong. That's a false view, a false view created by evolution. But wait a minute. If evolution creates false views about one aspect of morality, how can we trust it to create true views about other aspects of morality? Because evolution does not select for truth. It selects for reproductive survivability. That's what it selects for. So how can we have any confidence that our understanding of evolution is a true understanding if the result is a mindless process? The result of our mind and everything was the result of a mindless process of natural selection working on mutations. This is a serious problem, a huge problem, but it's just one of many on this explanation. And so it turns out that, you know, this, this doesn't, the Darwinistic evolutionary counter to the moral argument doesn't survive. It doesn't work because what it, the best it does is it affirms, it denies the premise that says morality is objective. And we know differently. The biggest thing is if morality is not objective, if the evolutionary thing is true, there is no problem of evil, no real problem of evil. Ironically, the same guys who hold this view complain about the existence of God based on, guess what? the problem of evil. You can't have it both ways if you're going to be intellectually honest. Michael Rose is best in this regard in terms of his clarity. Uh, and everybody else is playing a shell game. And I don't think they actually see it. I think they're just kind of caught up in their their deal. He, he, when I debated Michael Rose, he said, we used to believe that homosexuality was objectively wrong. Now we believe that homosexuality is objectively okay. So now we've improved our morality. Wait, wait a minute, it's, how can you improve it? It's, it's, it's very confused. And uh, the people who, who argue this way are as well. We're on solid ground, Parks, with the moral argument, every aspect of it. And it bears testimony to our best intuitions about the nature of reality. And the counters don't work. They just don't work. And Greg, I think uh, just kind of how you walked through that, it, it shows that one, 
it's important to be aware of when people try to give evolutionary explanations for things. It's, it really is important to press on um, how they know what they're describing actually took place. Like we're, you know, to go back to the empirical evidence thing that that's stressed so much. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, where, where's the empirical evidence for how this occurred? And that's exactly right. what you did talking about, okay, if you're going to say that uh, this is the way morality developed somehow and was reinforced, where where is the uh, empirical evidence for that? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're talking about biology, you're talking about an uh, empirical cell. system, right? Right. It's, it's, it's an empirical system all the way through. And so, I mean, that that's kind of another thing is that, you know, that would mean that morality is just, it's all physical, you know, it's not immaterial. And I think based on other things we've talked about, uh, it's obvious that, again, it's that realm of moral facts that we're aware of, that we have knowledge, it is immaterial. So an explanation that, that tries to reduce it to material reality can't be adequate, but it's just seeing the logical implications of, okay, this is the kind of process you're saying produced morality somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to think about the, the implications of that downstream. And yeah, Michael Roos, he, he, he says morality is a biological adaptation, mm-hmm. no less than hands or feet. That's right. And, uh, you know, we, we could have evolved to think completely differently about morality. By the way, that is a key point here because what it shows is that on this view, morality is not out there. It's in here. It could be different. And so what I role model this a little bit, but I want to emphasize this because it's so important. Using questions is really important in these conversations. So when somebody says evolution created this, you say, well, how does that work? Evolution is like a genetic mutation with natural selection, right? That's called the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Yeah. Okay. So help me understand how does that create empathy? How does that create a belief that something is wrong or I ought to be empathetic? How does that create that? Because that's the gap. You can't just wave the wand. So help me out there. By the way, when it, let's say you're right. So does that mean that our morality is inside of us because evolution created it? That's our beliefs, right? So if we evolve differently, we could be different, have a different morality, right? So that means nothing out there is wrong. Murder isn't wrong. It's only wrong because of our evolution. So that's relativism. Okay, then how can there be evil in the world? This is the question. So notice how we're just taking what they say. And as you pointed out, Parks, there are, there are ramifications, there are implications for this. And we're asking questions. Very important. Use questions to navigate. Asking questions to exploit that weakness or flaw and, and let them work on it. We're not going to let them wave a wand. We're going we're gonna to make them think this through better than most of them have. And by the way, human flourishing, what, what is that? What does that look like? Give me the details. What does it look like for humans to flourish? Do humans have rights? Where does that come from? Oh, humans made those rights? Can we unmake those rights then too? Yeah, of course. Happens all the time. That's the problem when humans ground rights. They decide what's, what rights we have. Anyway, so those are, those are some tactical elements that are involved there. That, that whole book, and pardon me for mentioning it again, but it's fresh on my mind because I'm just finishing it. The whole street smarts, we unpack all these ideas. Then there are dialogues that are provided with the appropriate questions to launch the dialogue to get that dialogue moving that really I think will be helpful to people, especially dealing with moral issues. Yeah. So it's so important to know how to take concepts like this, arguments like this, and, and, you know, gain a good understanding of them. And then to know how to discuss these issues with people in a way that can uh, get them thinking in a good way uh, about things that matter. Just one last point about this, um, this objection is that I think it's another case of 
thinking you have offered an explanation for morality when you haven't. So that's right. It, you know, if you're if if you're going to say something like, well, morality developed through evolution this way, um, empathy, something like empathy, would be the foundational starting point for moral reasoning with the goal of human flourishing. Well, you've just pointed out. Two things we recognize are good. Empathy is a good thing. Yeah. Certainly human flourishing. How it, you know, again, you got to talk about what that looks like, but you can, you can recognize that those two things are good, but it's a whole nother thing to explain why they're good. That's right. And uh, that's just, that runs into this problem that I keep seeing in challenges to the moral argument. Yeah. You know, you can explain it on a horizontal level in a sense, but what we're after is an explanation on the, the vertical level. Yeah. So right. to speak. That's the um, difference between relativism, horizontal, inside the subject, and the uh, and objectivism, which is going to be uh, vertical, because that's the only way you're going to get a grounding for objective morality. And that's the only kind of morality that really counts. And we all know morality is real in that sense. That's right. Uh, to last few questions here would be, okay, we've, we've talked about what the moral argument is. We've talked about some important features of it. We've looked at some objections. Um, so just I, I think a way to wrap up here would be just saying, okay, what what are some what are some implications uh, of the moral argument? So one thing that we could ask is, um, what does what does the moral argument tell us about God? Mm-hmm. Well, it tells us two things, and uh, and I've only, in a sense, started thinking about the second thing more recently because the first thing is what it's meant to do is to show you that there is a God. God exists cosmological argument, design argument, moral argument, God exists. But it actually does more than that. It shows you that not only does God exist, but that God's good. And that God is the only adequate source for that, such that if there is no God, or if he exists and he he isn't good, then there is no goodness. There is no standard. If God isn't good in himself, and that's the step that avoids the Euthyphro dilemma. I heard it first is Euthyphro, so J.P. Wallace says it that way. So, but in any event, he's probably the, right. <laughs> I hear it both ways. But that's you know, if he's good in himself, that protects us against that other concern. It's the answer to that challenge. Uh, then there is hope for goodness. That God is good, and that means we can trust in His goodness. That what He's going to do with the world and in our individual lives, as we entrust ourselves to Him will be good. But the, of course, the goodness of God is a double-edged sword because people say, well, God is love. Yeah, well, why is God, how do you, what makes you think God is love? Yeah, he's not going to judge anybody. He's like, why do you think God is love? Well, because he's good. Okay, he's good. Yeah, well, then he's not going to judge people. Yes, he is. Why? Because he's good. The same reason that God is love is the reason that God is going to judge because he's good. And he must distinguish between evil and good in human behavior and reward that which is good and punish that which is evil. And of course, the problem is everybody <laughs> has broken God's law many, many, many times. We're all guilty. And this is why in love, out of his goodness, he has made provision so that he can be both just and merciful by becoming a man himself, taking on humanity, coming down in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, Emmanuel, and taking upon his shoulders the punishment that we deserve so that we can experience forgiveness through Christ rather than the judgment that we actually deserve given the reality of morality and the goodness of God. 
God's mercy is expressed through Christ. Of course, that's our message. The whole moral thing cashes out on a personal basis and the forgiveness that God offers for us, which we desperately need. And that takes it from the abstract, from the philosophical to the personal uh, and experiential. And uh, you mentioned earlier, people say, well, you just believe in God because it makes you feel better. Well, I'll tell you what, forgiveness feels really good. But we have good reason to believe forgiveness is available for the crimes we have actually committed against a good God. Greg, I think that's uh, that, that's so important. How the, the the goodness of God in many ways is uh, comes under question, and of course, that's a whole other topic. How people kind of go after that, but when you kind of work through the moral argument and you see that that's that's what it says is that there is a good uh, personal God. Now, you know, as as Christians, when you look at all the other arguments for uh, the existence of God, combined with uh, you know the reliability of the Bible and Jesus and His claims and resurrection it's that cumulative case that would lead to right. the god of the bible so the moral argument is not doing all the work here but it's That's making right. important contributions and so kind of having all that other as background when, when this is pointing to the god of the bible and his goodness i mean that's huge and of course the bible speaks about these things it speaks about the goodness of god it speaks about uh how his law is written on our hearts our conscience bears witness to this mm-hmm. And these are just really important points, and especially when we think about our own moral failings and how we have sinned and the, the, what we're aware of in terms of our guilt. I mean, that, that is an extension of this question about morality, and it leads, it should lead, at least as the Bible speaks about it, straight, straight to the cross, which is where, like you said, we find uh, that forgiveness and that mercy and that reconciliation. You know, mm-hmm. Paul talks Absolutely. about how he... He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And exactly. I mean, you can't get more personal than that. And I, I think that's uh, that's huge. Um, so just to wrap up, are there any other important implications uh, you know, that we haven't talked about of this argument in, in your view? Well, I, I think the two things I mentioned, that God is and that he's good, um, are huge. Th- those are the main things that I focus in on. And uh, uh, I, I actually haven't thought, there are probably more, maybe you have some thoughts about that, but I, I uh, those are the big ones. But that that covers a whole lot of real estate. And uh, as you pointed out, the moral argument by itself doesn't give us Christianity, but it certainly is consistent with Christianity. And when we think of God's goodness and our badness, given the moral reality of morality in the world, then that puts us in a position where, okay, now what? God is good and we're not. That's not good news, okay? And so then the message of mercy that comes to Christ fits so nicely. And the the other religions, I don't, the great monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism, they, they, they just don't provide that. Uh, it's not that God can't be merciful, but but there is a, a way in which this is cashed out in Christian theology, where God is both just and the justifier of them who have has faith in Christ. And so I think it really comes full circle and really gives us a package that, that that's more more rich and justifiable. Of course, it's not just theoretical about Jesus coming down. He's a man of history. And so this can also be tested in the resurrection, which secures our salvation can also be tested based on the historical evidence. So at every single point of our testimony, at every piece of our worldview, we can look at pieces of evidence that give us confidence that this particular part is all sound and accurate. And so therefore, the whole package is pretty good. Greg, I think the only other thing that I could um, 
think of in terms of an implication would be, uh, you know, we talked about human rights. Um, when you think about the moral argument uh, it, and then you think about how this claim of rights is a moral claim, uh, underneath that claim of rights is a claim of human value of some yes. kind. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, we want to talk about cultural issues and what's prominent. Well, I mean, you're always going to hear claims about human rights, uh-huh. human rights being violated, you know, talk like that. And I, mm-hmm. I think underneath that is another powerful evidence that humans are more than biological machines, you know, that we, we seem to, to recognize that there is some sort of uh, intrinsic value there and that, to, and that there's a lot of ways that that's violated. And those are the times most often when we, when we recognize that something immoral has happened. Yeah. And I, I think that's another point. It's like, you know, that's, that's a great, um, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't mentioned that. I think of it in a little different category because that's like anthropology. That's, but now we get to human beings. God is the standard for the universe morality, but part of that package turns out to be human beings being unique and special. We already know this, and this is another feature of the world that we know in, intuitively. But how do we explain that? The Christian worldview does explain it because we are not God. We are not little gods, but we are like God in a way that makes all the difference. We are made in God's image. And all human rights and moral obligations towards other human beings flow from this fact that human beings are made in the image of God. So this is all part of the moral package and fits right in with the objective morality we've we've been talking about. Thank you so much again, Greg. Uh, Really, really appreciate your time and uh, and the work of uh, Standard Reason.